This episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's, it's how the robots decided that they were going to weight human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a new podcast about building food brands. We live in a culture that romanticizes entrepreneurship and the hustle. But what I really want to hear are the stories from the trek uphill. And I want advice in real time. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm happy to be speaking with Kara Posner, our sauce attorney from the Genuzzi Group. Note to all entrepreneurs, do not skimp on legal. You will need it. Hi, Kara. Hey, Ellie. How's it going? It's going well. Um, so a little bit about you. You grew up in Florida. And did, were you one of those little girls who was like, I rest my case? Like, were you a little legal eagle from childhood? I actually was not. I did not get interested in going to law school until my third year of college. Uh-huh. I was a major in advertising, and I've always been very into brands. Um, ah. Yeah. It it sounds like I might have wanted to end up and plan to end up where I am, but it's actually, you know, it's a very lucky story I have. Um, went to law school in Florida, had a job offer in Florida, but uh, happened to meet a guy in law school that's now my husband. So. Oh kind of followed him a bit up here and um, really was just happened to fall into the Genuzzi group. They had just broken off from a bigger firm. Can you tell us a little bit about the Genuzzi group at the time or now? Yeah. You know, because there, I did not know that I knew there were like medical lawyers and, you know, business lawyers and DAs, but I didn't really understand how many different sort of subsets of lawyers there are. So specifically. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're a little bit unique in that regard. There, there's a lot of, you know, versions of us in the tech world. Mm-hmm. Um, there's tech specialty firms. And, you know, like you said, there's there's medical lawyers and, and what have you. But our firm and our practice grew out of um, the experience of Nick uh, along the way with vitamin water in the late 90s and early 2000s. And then just co- sort of, you know, stumbling into this space and becoming such an expert in this space that we really tried to keep our focus only in food and beverage and, uh, and wellness and 
you know, it, it kind of happened very organically in the beginning when the firm first started in 2000, late 2010, early 2011. Mm-hmm. It was, um, I think we had about 30 clients and, you know, we were at the trade shows. We were kind of out there looking for clients right. and, and, and now, looking for emerging brands, looking for emerging brands, offering, you know, a unique set of skills and experience, not only, you know, legal work and the ability to be your attorney, but also to, you know, lend insight into what you should be thinking about as a brand as you grow. Right. And, you know, what are the legal pitfalls that we saw, at least in Vitamin Water's case and in the many other clients that Nick was representing at the right. time. Um, you know, but since then, that was seven years ago, seven, eight years ago, it's evolved into a, a practice that's, you know, now we have over a thousand clients. Wow. Um, I think. And you still pick up my phone call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're one of our favorite clients. Oh, cool. Thanks, Kara. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, a thousand. Smallest, but favorite. Yeah. I, I think we work actively with about 300 clients a month, so they're not always talking to us. But, right. um, yeah, no, it's, it's been a very organic growth, um, something that we're very proud of. And it makes sense that you love brands. Yes. And do you remember, because, I mean, I think, I think back, I've always loved brands. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that a brand can sort of tell its whole story, either just like in a logo or in a theme song or anything. Did you have brands when you were little that you loved that you remember? Um, you know, that's a tough question, but, but loving, loving brands generally always was a, a, a thing of mine. I, I mean, I majored in advertising in college, like right. I said, and I really, I really like the way that a brand has to figure out how to communicate with its audience. Right. And I think that, you know, I feel so very lucky to be in a position where I'm still sort of doing that in a yeah. way, but helping, you know, a brand protect itself right. in, in that process. And then when did law school come on the horizon? Um, my junior year of college, I'll be very honest with the reason I had, uh-huh. a, I had an internship at what was considered the best agency in the Southeast. And I was working for an art director who I thought was ancient at the time. She was probably 32. <laughs> right. And I, and I asked her candidly, I said, how much money do you make? And she uh-huh. told me, and, um, you That's know, when I, you decided to uh, be a lawyer. <laughs> I did. I did. I, I, I come from a, a very, um, loving family, but not a family that was always very financially stable. So I had, you know, I had a background in, right. involved that was was leading me in a different direction. Right. And, you know, so I made the decision for that reason, for financial stability and things like that. And that's why, like I said, I feel so lucky to have ended up still being able to do yeah. what I spent four years of my life studying. Totally. In a way. It's, I mean, it's funny. It's like a perfect job for you. Yeah. Now, if I could go back and rewrite the story, it would be that I always intended to be right. a genius group lawyer, and here I am. But, right. Um, and then you have a two-year-old. I do. And um, I, from what I understand, you were like giving birth and also, I don't know, doing legal things <laughs> at the same time. Like yeah. the word on the street is that you, uh, you're quite a powerhouse and you did not slow down. <laughs> I did not slow down, but for a little bit of time to spend some time with her and, and right. my husband at home and then um, very much looked forward to coming back. I, I did have a fear before having a child just because I don't know what that's like yeah. before it happens. Well, Cardi B, this yeah. past week, she was like, it's real, yeah, this yeah. baby thing. No, yeah. and, I, and I thought, well, you know, what if I don't want to come back then why right. you know I've done this my and I knew within two three weeks I was like this is great but yeah you know I, I love working I love helping clients and um I especially love the people that I work with which I right. think is you know vitally important no that's amazing so we were talking a little bit before we went live <laughs> and um I guess you know my f- 
my overarching question before we kind of get into the nitty gritty um, is, you know, basically when we started the sauces, my only thought about legal was that I needed to do sort of a separate LLC. And I had a, a wonderful attorney who helps us with Haven's things and he kind of did that. And I figured off to the races and we won't really need like any big guns for a while right. and and pretty much like week three all of a sudden you know we called you yeah. um so those early those early issues that you know if you're starting off and you are planning to launch a product what are some things that we need to know or that we forget or that we don't even know that we don't know right well i mean it sounds like you did the right first step in that you talked to an attorney about what entity you wanted to be in the first place. Right. Um, we have a lot of clients. That was one of my questions, actually. Y- yeah, yeah. And, you know, we are, we've traditionally been huge fans of the LLC because it allows for, LLCs are creatures of contract. Um, corporations are more creatures of statute, and there's a lot of rules and a lot of procedures, whereas LLCs, it's, you know, basically whatever you draft in the operating agreement can be your structure. And so we like that a lot from a legal perspective, it puts founders in positions to keep themselves in control, mm-hmm. even beyond, you know, majority ownership or whatever. Um, but yeah, the, one of the first things you should do is ask what entity should I be? Right. And I think in order to assess that, you should talk to an attorney or at the very least an accountant um, and decide. Um, like I said, we, we love LLCs, but there are some compelling reasons to be a corporation, as well. Um, and those are things you should explore. And, you know, if you've already formed an entity, that's okay. Still talk to somebody and and figure out whether you made the right decision. One thing I will say that if you're an emerging brand and we've had a few clients come to us, we don't understand the S corp structure and why that would ever be a choice. Right. Um, mainly because they hashtag no S corp (laughs) hashtag if, (laughs) unless you're going to keep your, you know, company as sort of a profitable standalone operation that you want to pass on to your kids, probably not an S corp. Um, they have a lot of restrictions in terms of, um, shareholder base. You cannot bring in entities. So that's pretty much every private equity fund. Right. Um, and you cannot sell preferred stock, which, you know, again, could could exclude a lot of opportunities. Are those the three options, basically, corporation, LLC, and S-Corp? Yes. There's also um, a growing number of states, including Delaware, are uh, enacting, I think they call it public benefit corporations, which is kind of... B-Corp? Yeah. Well, B-Corp's a private organization that does certifications, and I think um, they've done a lot of great work to actually push for legislature that matches what they're trying to do on the private level. Right. It's almost like, you know, they go hand in hand. And I think even now, I haven't done much B Corp research recently, but I think their website now says that if you are in a state that has a PBC option within two years or whatever, you'll actually finish the finish that step. Oh, wow. So they, they kind of go hand in hand, but B Corp was a, was a private way of kind of, you right. know. And why, why, what's the Delaware thing? What, why is everyone like, do it in know. Delaware? Every time I Delaware drive, every better. time I drive through <laughs> Delaware and I see their nice, pretty roads and everything, I think you're just scamming every business in the whole world. No, um, we love Delaware, but the, the real reason is, is it's historical, you know, it's, it's history based. Delaware was sort of the first state that really, um, kind of built the body of corporate law uh, via case law and um, had the best in the first sort of corporations uh, code and and LLC act and all that. And it's, you know, they're just, you know, they're scamming us. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
I've um, never been there, but you yeah, know, no, I feel like everyone and their brother is incorporated. In yeah, Delaware no, Delaware is great. It, it's all a matter of just how the the case law evolved and how right. the, the legal atmosphere evolved, and they were really first to everything and have have built upon it Got since it. then. So, so once you decide what you want to be, hopefully with the help of an attorney, then yep. would is there? Um, I think the next biggest issue is is division of ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many clients have come to us and say, you know. I own 80% and I've got two co-founders that each own 10% each. We formed the company three years ago and we say, okay, well, where's the documents that show that? Well, you know, we, we've been working every day. We, had, we haven't, you're our first lawyer. We're, we're hiring you now. Right. Um, you know, what about the tax returns? Well, I mean, I formed the entity, so it shows me as owning 100% the last two years. But, you know, they, they really own, you know, just things right. like that. If, yeah. If you want to give co-founders equity sort of day one we call them day one people right you know that should be settled right away right and you know a related question is whether those you know folks should also be subject to some sort of work requirement you know are you giving away 10 percent to a so-called co-founder who's not really going to show up like you will right um and that's different than employee equity that's that's separate and that's something that comes later but yeah, dividing up the company in the way that it should be and, and documenting that early is right. very, very important. I do feel like friends I have have given have given co-founder status and a big chunk of equity to someone they think will be either like great networking or, you know, sort of helpful mm-hmm. to have them involved in some way. Right. Um, and... And there are definitely times where people sort of wish they had that chunk Definitely. Back. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you're talking about 10 to 15 percent, I mean, like we were saying before the show, that that's what you should be setting aside for like your entire employee and service provider base from start to finish. You know, right. so if you give someone that much off the bat for, you know, maybe being around, it's. You know, it's something you need to think about, but it's sensitive issues because a lot of times, you right. know, these are your friends yeah. or even your family members. Right. Um, but I think the the general rule is whatever you intend and whatever the group intends for it to be, just document it, you know, concurrently with when that decision is being made. Right. Okay. So that is there, are there more sort of don't mess this up <laughs> early on stuff? Um, you know, I think after forming the right company and, and, you know, papering your equity, I think the very next thing has to be you know, who owns your product? Uh, did you get the idea from a friend? Did you hire a third party to sort of make something in the lab? And, Interesting. And, and did they develop a formula for you? If they did, that's great. But you need to make sure you have a document that says that, you know, for this money that you paid me or this service or whatever, right. you own everything that I've created for you. We've had a client come to us within the last couple of years, a few actually, and um, we say, well, give us all your documents. We'll see where you stand on this or that. And there's a formula agreement or a research and development agreement in there that says, you know, your three SKUs are made by XYZ company. And um, we, the the developer, own them. Yeah. Period. So they don't own their company at I mean, the end of the day. No. Or they don't own their product. They don't own the product. I mean, every step of the way you have to be thinking, is what I'm creating, can I sell it? Can I give it away myself? Right. And here, you know, this is something that thankfully we caught. And, um, you know, they approached the developer and there was a, a small settlement and it right. wasn't that big of a deal, but it's something that if that contract had sat and collected dust for five years and then you're going to sell, yeah. you know, that contractor could come out of the woodwork and say, hey, you just sold something I own. Right. That's you know, crazy. I actually should have all of that money. 
So, I mean, it's funny because I had a, I had our graphic designer on a couple of weeks ago and her sort of, the, the main takeaway I got from my, from my time with her was bring graphic design in earlier, you know, and I think what I'm getting from you is like, bring legal in earlier. <laughs> like it's, you know, these are all decisions that are, are slightly awkward, yes. you know, and especially as you said, when you're dealing with friends and family and even when you're dealing with people who are helping you make something, mm-hmm. even if they aren't friends or family, you want to look like you're coming from a place of trust. You don't want to seem like you're litigious. Like we have a couple of service providers that don't like to operate with contracts. And we feel very strongly that we need to operate with contracts. Right. And it's not because we don't trust anybody. It's just because at this point we've had enough sort of not operating with contracts that we feel like we need to. And it can be a difficult conversation to have, but it's worth it. It is difficult. It can be awkward, but it's always worth it, especially when you're talking about a logo or, you know, a design or a slogan or or anything like that. I mean, I I can't tell you how many deals we've done, even just in the context of like normal investments where an investor is doing due diligence and they see that somebody created something and there isn't sufficient documentation showing that they conveyed the ownership to the company. It's very awkward to go back to that person who maybe you paid five grand at the time to say, Hey, you know, this agreement isn't quite up to par. We're getting this huge investment and they'd like you to sign this because, you know, sometimes in the rare situation, it turns into a shakedown. Right. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an unnecessary tax on the business. You know, you, you can just take care of that. You know, is there anything first of all, I guess like, and how would someone, I mean, I was fortunate enough to have friends that knew you guys, um, but how does someone go about finding, what kind of attorney <laughs> does someone, you know, I have this great cookie and I'm like, I have my formula and I've got my packaging and, you know, I met Whole Foods at the fancy food show and they want it and I'm ready to go and now I need to like figure out my legal stuff who, you know, how does one go about finding that attorney and what kind of attorney are they looking for? Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about the governance and the corporate stuff and the equity issuances and making sure all that's buttoned up, I think there, you know, any corporate lawyer can help you with that. Right. The only problem that you could encounter in that situation is that corporate lawyers generally may gloss over some things that are important in this particular space. For right. example, we, we've seen clients come to us with operating agreements that other lawyers have drafted, competent lawyers, sometimes big firms. Right. And in the back of the provision or in the back of the agreement, there's a provision that says you can't amend this agreement unless you have the unanimous consent of the members. And right. you've got some member in there that owns less than 1%. And the idea that in order to raise money and bring a new investor in, you have to go get this person's signature, right. it's crazy. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the corporate lawyer was a bad lawyer. Right. It's just they're not thinking right. about it from the you know, from the view of, right. well, this company's going to raise money right. four or five times and, and eventually try to sell. Right. Because this is really, I mean, this is, this is not just legal. This is like legal when it comes to building a scalable, that's exitable right. brand that's at right. the end of the day. Yeah. And that's where we think that... That we differentiate ourselves yeah. a lot because we just have so many reps doing the same thing right. over and over again for different types of products and we've seen the mistakes and they're all the same mistakes yeah. occasionally you'll get a crazy one but you know the the things that can be avoided just with um you know a more strategic eye on on the contracts you're right. executing along the way 
Okay, so we're going to take a little break, and when we get back, I'm going to ask you about a thousand very specific <laughs> nitty-gritty legal questions, okay? Okay, okay. sounds fun. <laughs> episode is brought to you by Charlotte's Got A Lot. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University. HRN went to this year's symposium to learn about the science, history, and art of bread making. Here's what visitors had to say about the symposium. I love the geeky science stuff. Great food. Love the Armenian pizza. How much I'm eating <laughs> and consuming the carbs. The most interesting thing is just the community. For me, it's the, the, the science of starters. So much information. Very inspiring so far because everybody has a different outlook. I'm not technically a breadhead, but I think I'm going to be one after being here. So whether you're a breadhead or just a curious mind, Check out HRN On Tour for coverage of Charlotte's International Symposium on Bread and an insider's look into Charlotte's food scene. Don't miss our interview with Peter Reinhardt and Kristen Moore to learn more about where to eat on your next trip to Charlotte, a city on the rise. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. Moxie Rosenblum, my dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Hi, I'm back with Kara Posner from the Genuzzi Group, our sauce attorney, um, and a great one at that. And <laughs> before the break, you had said something that like alerted me, which is that most of the companies that you have, you know, that come to you sort of after a couple of years have made very similar mistakes. There were a couple of, I think you said, yes, wild ones. I'd like to know, yeah. first yeah. off, you know, because obviously, like, my whole thing is, like, reverse engineering anything I can. Right. So I ask, what are the mistakes so that I can try not to make them? I'll make different mistakes, no question. Mm -hmm. um, but what are some of those mistakes? And, and I, you mentioned a couple of them, but if there are more. And then I'd love to just hear, you know, yeah. a doozy. Yeah, no, I can tell you some crazy stories. Um, <laughs> so the mistakes that we see, they're not necessarily, you know, the most frequent, but they're the most catastrophic yeah. that we see. Those are good to know. Yeah. So I think the the first um, thing that you really have to make sure you get right is we talked about a little bit about your formula and making sure you own your product, but also your trademark and your, and yeah. your labeling. I wanted to ask you about trademark and labeling and the whole TM thing and how to do the right search. and Yeah, uh, yeah. Know. Well, we actually, our firm doesn't do specialized trademark work, so I can't talk too much about the nitty gritty stuff. But generally speaking, you, you know, you want to make sure that 
once you come up with a name or a logo or, or whatever you're going to go forward with, that you are filing your trademark where you are going to be and where you're planning to expand to. And then even, and a trademark lawyer can help you with this, in countries where, you know, the trademark law is very predatory um, and making sure you're buttoned up because, you mm. know, y- you may be acquired by somebody who is is international and, right. you know, they're thinking a lot bigger than you might. So even if you're not planning to sell in China or whatever, right. you know, make, make sure your trademark lawyer is at least looking into, you know, whether the name's available, whether right. there's anybody who's squatting on it, um, things like that. And then along the same lines is making sure that your labeling and your yes. website is compliant because there are literally plaintiff's lawyers that spend their days walking the aisles of Whole Foods in California yep. and looking for the new products that pop up and finding a mistake. And if you haven't had your labels reviewed, there will be at least one, probably two or three, yep. and then sending you a letter and saying, my client was damaged and you, you know, you owe this much or I'm willing to settle for this much. And you'll, you know, we have clients come to us and it's not the tiny clients. It's the very established clients sometimes and say, well, what can I do about this? And said, well, you, you you figure out a number and you pay this person because your label's wrong. And those are just things that you can avoid. You know, label review is not costly, but settling a lawsuit like that is. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we, very early on, we decided, we said something like nothing, like all we didn't say all natural. We said something like nothing artificial. Right. But I guess in 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 Mirin or in Tamari or something, there's a sub. It's alcohol, which mm-hmm. is a sub of something. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it got really, and we're like, no, but it took. Yeah. You know, so we we decided to take some stuff off. Yeah. And we're, we, you know, you can never claim anything that hasn't been certified. I mean, that I know. Yeah, there's just so many rules, and and they're changing all the time, too. That's the thing. So, you know. Even about where the things are placed on the package. Yeah, where they're placed, the order in which they're named, the font size. I mean, whether you have a certain ingredient requires sort of a more prominent display. I mean, it's it's a lot of stuff to be thinking about. And certainly the person or the firm that you're hiring to design your labels, number one, their contract's going to say it's not on them anyway. Totally. But even if it were on them, they wouldn't know what's going on. So. I mean, though I will say we decided to do, you know, we started, we made these stickers and we just had like our baristas from work just like stickering on the pouches. Mm-hmm. We had no idea we were going to be selling as many as we ended up selling. So we thought that was like a tenable <laughs> yeah. situation, which it turned out pretty quickly not to be. Right. But we've already gone through in just a year, three different label, you know, three different packaging mm-hmm. You know, don't commit, I guess. It's worth, this is my note to entrepreneurs. It's worth not buying 200,000 labels and and spending less money on the labels. It's it's worth it to buy fewer labels and be able to iterate adapt. and keep yep. changing and adapt, even though it feels like it's a lot of money. And it's also worth it to get the legal advice to make sure that you're doing it the right way. It definitely is, especially as you start to gain traction. I mean, there's an argument that if you're so small, you know, no one's going to really come after you because they don't see a big dollar sign. But once you right. start getting a little traction, you will become, you know, a target. You will become a target and somebody will send you a letter if your labels are wrong. Right. Okay. So own your product. Make sure that your trademark and your labeling are tidy. See what you can do about other countries and just make sure that you own as much as possible. 
And um, another big mistake we see is in the manufacturing world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a lot of clients that sign exclusive manufacturing agreements, either for a certain territory or sort of just flat out. Um, and those aren't always bad. Right. But, you know, you always have to anticipate a situation, always imagine the best case scenario, outgrowing a manufacturer. Um, You know, what happens if you place a purchase order for a million units and they can only make 500,000? Right. And they have you in an exclusive and you can't go to another one. Yeah. I mean, the natural business-minded person says, well, they can't make it for me, so I'll just engage somebody else. Right. Um, And you can do that, but you're breaching that contract. Yeah. We have had a couple situations where that happened, and it happened for a very long period of time, and it really was only discovered in the context of a, a very successful acquisition, and the buyer would not move forward until we contacted the manufacturer, admitted the mistake or you know the, right. the way we had done business for those two or three years, and um, you know settled. Right. Because it did become very, you know, it, it was a shakedown situation. And the yeah. manufacturer had every right to be that way because, you know, they it had a contract, contract that was being breached. Yeah. I, I've never seen contracts until the CPG world where you cannot get out. <laughs> well, well, I I've will. I've literally I, never seen something like that. I will say in the case of, of that crazy situation, I'm not even sure that the manufacturer intended for that to be the case. Meaning right. if you outgrow me, you cannot make somewhere else. It was just a matter of poor drafting. Right. Got it. And, and the client who we were dealing with had, was working with a very sophisticated law firm at the time who did review the contract. And all you needed in there was some language saying, but if we outgrow Unless you, you can, right. then to the extent we outgrow you, we can go with other people. And I can't imagine at the time the manufacturer would have blinked. I mean, right. as long as you're buying as much as you can from, from him, what does he care? Um, but yeah, it's, it, that, that's one thing we see a lot. Another thing we see a lot in the context of manufacturing and distribution is um, around the concept of assignment, which is usually towards the end of the contract, seems like in the midst of all the boilerplate stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like most contracts say, you cannot assign this agreement without the other party's consent. And in the the legal world... Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so the basic legal meaning of assignment is taking the services you were going to provide or you were going to receive and kind of passing them to someone else. So if, if, if Haven's Kitchen had a a manufacturing agreement and then said, you know what, actually our friend makes widgets, we're going to assign that agreement over to them. Right. That's an, you know, that's an insane situation. The manufacturer (laughs) consent with that should consent to that. Um, what assignment means sometimes though in the legal world is selling your business, selling all of your right. assets to an acquirer. So these so they're is, not working for you anymore. They're working for yeah, the so, acquirer. Yeah, so nothing's changing, but you know, technically an assignment may be occurring. And what we've seen in those situations, if you don't have a little proviso in there, mm-hmm. which I guarantee every every contract you've sent to us now has, right? Um, is that you know you're going to sell your business? Uh, uh, either your lawyers or the other side recognizes that there's an assignment uh, consent, right? Right. You go to your manufacturer, your distributor, whoever, and you say, hey, I'm going to sell my business. And again, a shakedown situation yeah. because they don't have to give you this. Right. They wouldn't have objected to it at the time you signed. Right. But now they're in a position of leverage. Right. And it's just one of those silly things that you can generally avoid. I, I mean, I now feel like taking every single thing I have <laughs> and putting it like through the wash at Genuzi. Like my packaging, all of my contracts, every agreement I have, like I, I just want you guys to like look at everything and make sure everything is neat and tidy and super cleaned up. Yeah, I mean, we're, ha- we're happy to do that. <laughs> I don't know how um, cost Great. efficient it'll be. I don't know. I feel like it might be worth it. Yeah, um, no, I mean... It, 
how much you use a lawyer or us yeah. or whoever, it's, it's always a tricky decision. It, when we first started the firm or, um, you know, seven, eight years ago, our clients were so small. Some of them were big, but most of them were small, such that, you know, sometimes our advice was don't spend money on legal now. Come, right. come back to us, you know, handle your business, grow and come back. But we found that that advice just didn't really work well because by right. the time they came back to us, so many bad things had happened had to happened. them along the way. Right. That, you know, well, that's why it's really nice that you give us, you know, a hundred free hours a month. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Pro bono. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, it is, it's always a tough decision because legal always feels like one of those things that, you know, the money can be better spent elsewhere. Right. Well, those and, are two questions like that go hand in hand. One is like, okay, how much should I budget? Mm-hmm. You know, I've already blown through what I thought I would spend on legal mm-hmm. in a year for a number of reasons. Um, And secondly, you know, I guess, let's do that one. Yeah. What's what's that one? Yeah, the the budget is hard. It's hard to place a dollar amount on it. Um, Right. You know, it kind of depends on what you're planning to do in that first year or whatever time frame you're thinking about. But, you know, what you can do and what lawyers, including our firm, are always happy and willing to do is to give you an estimate. You know, reach out and say, I'm thinking of doing this or here's this agreement. Don't look at it yet. Um, You know, how much do you think this is going to cost in terms of time? And, and, you know, billables to, to review this. Right. Because the worst thing that can happen is I say it's going to cost a billion dollars and you say, oh, no, thanks. You right. know? Exactly. Um, so. so, I mean, that that is the second question. What do you think we, you know, what can we do as founders and entrepreneurs without you early on? And what should we just, like, never attempt to do without you? Like, where where's... We're probably going to not make that bad of a mistake doing this, but this could really bite you if you're, I mean, I guess it's right. I mean, sort the, of those things. Yeah, the best advice that I have um, for any founder or, or the, the team surrounding the founder is that somebody needs to read top to bottom every single contract. And I, it's, I mean that. Thank like, you, Katie Carey, yeah. is all I can Ev- say. Every word, it, you know, and it, it's not a fun task. It's like, you know, anytime the new Apple terms and conditions change and that big crazy... You don't read that. Nobody do reads that, but no. Okay. No, I do not okay, read that. But, sure. but that's the type of reading that right. somebody should be doing because, you know, a lot of contracts that you receive look exactly like that yeah. and just as, just as intimidating and long. And I think what you'll find is that although the language may appear a little intimidating, it at the end of the day, it's just, it's English. just English. Yeah, right. and, and, and you'll understand things as you come, up, come upon them. And if you don't, and if something looks weird, then at least you have a narrow issue to send an email right. to me and say, you know, what is this? Right, um, no, that's a great, actually, that's a great piece of advice. And I think that's kind of how Katie operates with you a lot. You yeah. know, we don't just sort of send you things generally. We yeah, I mean, sort of th- there's, there's so many things that a young company is 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 doing and, and a lot of contracts that are coming in and out I mean it's it's hard for us to say what you should and shouldn't send but you know if there's anything that appears to be locking you into a really long term um, you know in, imposing a fee if you want to get out early mm-hmm. um, exclusivity is a big thing to to watch out for what that means are there yeah. are there ways around it mm-hmm. um, non-competes uh, yes any anything that appears to put restrictions on you right. or, or handcuffs on what you can and can't even do. if they're not doing a good job or they're not doing the job that yeah. they said they're going to do and that's what I was saying before I've never seen a contract like that like yeah. where you literally cannot get out even if it's not going well you would think that 
if it's not going well, everyone would want out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that brings up a good point, too, because, you know, most every agreement, even if it appears, uh, you know, like it has a long term, there's always some sort of termination for breach clause in there. And you, th- a lot of people see that and think, well, okay, well, if they're doing a bad job, I'll just terminate them for breach. No, yeah, no, no. That's, right. not, that's not how it works. Termination for breach is virtually impossible to prove. It'll just, you know, create a fight. And ultimately, it's just going to end up in some sort of settlement situation, which... It will not be good for you. Yeah, and and honestly, that's why some, you know, industry players do impose these sort of long, non-terminable terms. It's not because they actually expect you to stay with them if things aren't going well. It just puts them in a really good position, you know, leverage-wise, if you do want to get out, because it will be a negotiation. Right, I think you said something like, to prove breach, first of all, you have to give them sort of like, I'm going to try to prove breach now. So even if you have to do that, then anyone can just clean it up for the next 30 days and then you don't have yeah that yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, i i can't i mean i've i've actually in two days i will have been working for genuzi group for seven years and i can't recall (laughs) thanks one situation not one where we assisted a client to successfully terminate for breach it just doesn't happen because it always turns into a discussion and then a settlement right and once you've opened that door with the service provider they know that you're unhappy and then they can really do some damage Mm mm-hmm you know, or just neglect you, yeah, which is doing damage yes, at this point. Definitely. So what should, you know, what are some, because not everyone's going to be fortunate, right, to have you guys, but what are some questions that, you know, a, a new founder should ask when they're sort of shopping around for attorneys? Like what are some big ones or some red flags that you would say do not sign on with someone if they don't know X. Yeah, I mean, I, I would ask a lawyer what they do most. You know, what do they specialize in day in, day out? Um, you know, for example, if, if someone came to me and asked me to do their um, real estate purchase, right. I, I would, like, start to panic. And I, right. I would feel totally incompetent. And I would tell them, you know, there's a thousand other people in this city and, and much more around the country that can do a job, do this job better than me. Um, you know, so I, I would ask a lawyer what they do. Right. Um, it's a good place to <laughs> Yeah. Well, actually, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah, it's, it's like going to an eye doctor for a heart condition. I mean, right. yes, you're both doctors, but um, it's, it's, it's not the same. So, right. yeah, I mean, what do, they, what do they do? What type of experience do they have in this space? Um, another thing just to keep in mind is that, you know, this, the food and beverage industry generally we have found to be very open and very collaborative. So, you know, if you know that a particular lawyer represented a brand, you know, reach out to that founder, see if they're satisfied with their services, um, you know, including on us, ask, ask around. It is a very, it it is a very nice community Mm -hmm. for the most part. Um, so let's go back to the equity discussion because so, you know, I think there, you almost find yourself as a small brand, you know, you need money, right? Most yeah. of us are, are trying to bootstrap it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's for a number of reasons. One, if you take in a lot of money, you usually don't own a big chunk of your own company. Uh, two, it's hard to get money, you yeah. know, until you have a proven concept and at least some sort of proof in sales. Um, so we're always a little bit poor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that leads us to making two sort of big financial, probably mistakes at the end of the day. One is bringing in outside money 
too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is giving away equity to people instead of paying them salaries. Right. And so what are your thoughts on, you know, when to bring in that outside money? I know it's not, you know, I understand that you're coming at it from the legal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the outside people, and then what are your thoughts on, you said 10% of the company is reserved for everybody that works that you're giving equity to that works at the company and service providers. Right. I mean, there's, there's no rules, but as a founder, you right. should, you should try to keep 10 to 15% sort of the cap, um, on day one and looking forward that, that can always change. Right. And which to a lay person, you know, I'm thinking, well, 1% isn't that much, but I mean, mm-hmm. you were like, oh, 1% is <laughs> a lot, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And what did you say about yeah. if you, a yeah. CEO or? Yeah, we, we try to, a lot of, a lot of clients ask us, well, how, you know, what should, what should a VP of marketing get? What should this person get? And it, it's hard to say, you know, on a case by case basis, but the general rule of thumb is that you know, in our view, if you were going to hire an outside CEO, so you're the founder and you're kind of going to take a step back and Mm -hmm. you want someone else to run the ship, how much do you give that person? We would say, you know, between three and 5% max, you know, absent X, you know, crazy circumstances where the company's just drowning and and you need help. But um, yeah, in a normal sort of arm's length transaction, three to 5% for a CEO. um, And to make sense. And in terms of just people, you know, when you want to say thank you mm-hmm. to people who've been very helpful, equity might not be the best thank you. It maybe you should just give them a bottle of wine, <laughs> <or> <laughs> yeah, like send them something. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, equity as a thank you is, is is tough because presumably that person's friendly and they don't really need it. Equity as compensation when you're you know low on cash right. can be a very valuable tool. Um, as long as you do it right, you know, if you want to incentivize someone to help you out and you don't have the money to pay them, right. that's a very common situation. So maybe um, equity as incentive versus yeah, giving, equity. Yeah, giving yeah. equity as an, as an incentive, putting some vesting metrics on it, you know. Oh, be, talk about vesting a little bit. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't just give no, 1% do not, right away. No, right. no, don't give away 1% for nothing. Um, right. Yeah, so, you know, a typical equity grant for a service provider should have some sort of vesting mechanism um, going forward. If the person has already been with you for a year and you want to kind of credit them for that, that's mm-hmm. totally fine too. Um, but yeah, we see two different types of vesting most common. One is time-based vesting and the other is tied to some sort of performance, either company performance generally that this person, you know, may contribute to, but doesn't directly control right? or, you know, individual performance for, you know, a sales rep. Um, so if you're giving someone 1%, let's say, even though that's a lot, yeah. basically you're saying it will take generally a couple of years. Yeah, three to five years is, is a good for that one schedule. Yeah, and you can splice it up however you want. You can be as creative as you want. You could say, you know, half of that 1% vests over time and, you know, 12 equal quarterly installments. And then you can right. say half of it vests, you know, uh, as follows, you know, first when the company hits 5 million in sales, right. then, you know, whatever you consider success for that person. And do you think that it makes sense to do it right off the bat or would you sort of advise like try to lean on the salary bit Um, or, or do you think it, it really does build a better team? I mean, you have a lot of companies that you've watched grow. Yeah. I mean, it all depends on, on the compensation package that the person needs and what you're willing to give them. You know, if they have a nice salary, um, perhaps you can hold back on the equity portion. Um, if you'd like to really incentivize them to, to go crazy and, and to really put their all in, right. um, you know, 
giving them equity is a nice tool. The only thing, you know, you really have to keep in mind is that time is the, you know, it, it's always playing a factor. So if you want to give someone 1% or a half percent or whatever, give it to them, paper it, get it done. Because if you come to us a year or two later and say, well, you know, I said I would give it to her. I didn't really get around to papering uh-huh. yet. Um, you know, there could be tax issues right. with trying to get them the value that they should have gotten. Two I feel years like ago. paper it might be like the, <laughs> yeah. the theme of the, exactly. of the hashtag today. Paper it, yeah. Um, um, but we can go back also to your question about outside money. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's always a, you know, it varies from case to case, but our general preference, if you can do it, is that the first, you know, financing round you do, maybe even the second or the third, um, try to get money that is not really going to demand a lot of you. We call it dumb money. It's okay. not meant to be insulting. Like um, it just means, you know, high net worth individuals, friends and family, people right. who are not going to ask for monthly or quarterly sort of. Yeah, or, right. or board seats or right. blocking rights or approval rights, you know, kind of along the theme that we were talking about earlier, one of the biggest mistakes we see, and this happens a lot, this is the most frequent thing, is that in your first round of financing, you know, a client will give away two board seats and 15 blocking rights. We don't even have a board. <laughs> don't you have to have a board to give away board Well, seats? If, if you had made this mistake, you would have a board by now. Um, but, but yeah, just giving away too many rights early because chances are you're going to need a second and a third and right. a fourth round of financing. And whatever you do in one round, you're going to do the same or worse in the next. Right. Um, and, and the quicker that that control is eroded away, you know, the faster you lose control right. as a company. And it doesn't ever have to happen, ever. But if it does happen, right. at least, you know, make it happen slowly. So it's not um, even just a question of the percentage of the company that you're giving away, but the control that comes with it. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, valuation is one thing. And, and how do you... Can we talk about that, too? <laughs> like, people start things, they don't even have a product, and they get, you know, $8 million valuation, $10 mm-hmm. million value. I mean, how do you begin to even think about Valuations. Yeah, I mean, valuation is one of those things that can be t- totally based on nothing or mm-hmm. based on, you know, some proof of sales or whatever. Right. Ultimately, it's it's really just negotiation between the company and the investor about how much they want to give away at the time for how much money. Right. It doesn't mean the company's worth what they're saying. Right. Um, you know, but one risk of imposing a high valuation just to avoid a lot of dilution is that when you go to raise a priced round that is sort of legitimate and is based on what you've done, you know, there's a chance that it could be lower. Right. Oh, then the, oh, yeah, got it. Yeah. And you don't, and you don't want to have a history of, of, of down rounds, they call them, right. um, where basically your first investor says, wait a minute, you know, I, I paid way too much, you know, what's going on here? Right. So. Have you seen in your experience watching all these different brands, are there a couple of things that you now feel like you're like, that one's a winner? Like, what are the indicators to you of someone that's going to be successful, a company that's going to be successful, or even some like "Eh," red (laughs) flags, like not sure how that one's going to eke it out? You know, I think the biggest indicator that I've seen, and Nick has said this trillion times, mm-hmm. um, you know, either in the office on the phone with clients or, or when he's speaking to, uh, to people is that, you know, the product is one thing and it's, you have to have a good product, but management is really the key. You right. know, who's running the company? Are they, you know, all in? Are they dedicated? Do they have the experience? Or, yeah. Right. Do they have the experience or even if they don't, or do they, are they terrified enough to know that they know nothing and they're willing right. to ask questions? And, 
Um, you know, are they reading the contracts? Are they really caring about the issues? You know, the, the, the clients that we see that aren't as successful as, you know, a lot of times have founders that aren't quite as focused, um, perhaps have other ventures, perhaps are independently wealthy, um, you know. So I think management is, is the biggest key that we see. Right. Obviously, you have to have a good product as well, but right. um, I think a lot of that stems from management. No, there are a lot of good products out there that just don't make it. I mean, Derek said that about operations, too. There mm-hmm. are a lot of really good products out there that just don't make it through because they're not managed well. And by the way, there are a lot of like so-so products out there that somehow manage mm-hmm. to kind of crush it. Yep. And I think it's because they've been, they've been managed super well. Right. Um, what's the most fun that you've had doing this job? Ooh. Um, work wise or personal? Wise? Well, <laughs> we can talk personal after, but I mean, you must get a little thrill when you see a company that you started off with pretty young ending up, you know, making selling for tens yep. of millions of dollars or, you know, yeah. what's, what, what are the small victories that you feel? Yeah. The small victories. I mean, I, I feel the, Every day I've ever gone to work, and I mean this 100%, mm-hmm. it's, I've never regretted walking in the door and thinking, oh, God, i got to work again today. Every yeah. day I'm excited to, you oh. know, help somebody achieve their dream. And, and so many of our founders have, you know, put everything on the line. Yeah. You know, the, their, their families are counting on them. Yep. Their houses are mortgaged in some situations, and they're really going for it. To, so to see success stories like you know, Chameleon selling to Nestle last year. I was very involved with them for several years. And, you know, Chris is a great guy and they had a really good team. And um, so that that was a lot of fun. Just seeing people, you know, taking what was uh, an idea and and building it, it's it's very satisfying to see that. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's really fun Mm -hmm. building something from scratch. It's just it's a lot more complicated. Yeah. I mean, it sounds so silly to say, like, of course it's complicated. It's never been built before. Mm-hmm. But I think, um, you know, this has been really, really helpful to me. I feel like I probably missed a bunch of questions. <laughs> but, you know, paper it. Yeah, is, paper is, it. Is, is, <laughs> is issue number one. Um, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, definitely. It's been so awesome. much fun. Yay. Thanks, Kara. <laughs> definitely. And we will see you next time. I always say that on In the Sauce. And I just want to thank David for once again being the star engineer that he is. There's a lot that goes into making this thing listenable. Um, So I want to thank him again. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.